Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you to all the people who have become supporters of the show. We need your support and we need more support in order to keep it going. This is something that I pay for out of pocket, as many of you already know, and I really am determined to keep it available to everyone, to keep it available to the many people who listen to it free each week. So please partner with me to let it still be a resource for those who need it, who I've come to find out are listening to it from all over the world. Go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter of the show for any amount you can, and you'll get some cool merchandise. And also, if you reach a certain tier and give a certain amount each month, you go to the tier called Talk to Me, which gives you a chance, if you want, to have a conversation with me once a month for about the 50-minute hour that is kind of the counseling and consulting hour, and it's yours. If it's something that you would like as a way to thank you for supporting the show. Also, if you're interested in participating in the former cult member support group, and it includes people who have been or still are in relationships with narcissists and controllers, and also friends and family of those who are in situations where they're being controlled and they want to know how to help, how to intervene, or if they should intervene. Contact me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com or at BernsteinLMFT, F as in Frank, T, at gmail.com. Let me know if you're interested in that. And thank you also to all the people who contacted me from different parts of the world after I made this announcement last time about some of the places where it's very popular. I heard from those places, from people in those places. I also heard from others who said, hey, you didn't mention my country, but I listen to you from here. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I just wanted to let you know. And it's very powerful, very powerful to hear from all of you and to hear about what speaks to you about the show. Please also send me some ideas of things that you'd like to hear about, things that might touch you, things that you're dealing with in your family, in your country, in your town, in your part of the world. I'm happy to partner with you on the content of the show. And if you want to be a guest yourself, if you have a story that relates to this podcast and you want to be able to share it, be in touch with me too. That's how a lot of people get on the show. They let me know, hey, this happened to me. So I think I'd like to talk about it. And for a lot of people, it's the first time and it's so moving. So thank you so much again for your support. And please be in touch. And I'll talk to you soon. everybody. Today on the show, we have a very special episode for you. It will be another one of our crossover episodes, but with a twist. We will be sharing the first part of my conversation with Dr. Clint Haycock, an ex-evangelical pastor 
and Bible college teacher of over 20 years. The second half of our conversation will be airing on Clint's podcast, Mind Shift. You can find a link to the Mind Shift podcast in the show notes to this episode. We're so happy there is now a community of people creating podcasts to educate people about cults and systems of control. These crossover episodes are a way of connecting listeners to shows that might be helpful to them and a way for all who are a part of this podcasting community to grow their reach. If you're a listener of MindShift and are checking us out for the first time, then welcome. And please check out our archive of nearly 200 interviews with cult survivors, experts, journalists, and more. So today, we're happy to introduce you to Dr. Clint Haycock. After deconstructing his former Christian faith and leaving it behind more than a decade ago, he's used the MindShift podcast platform to educate and help those who have left religion to rebuild their lives. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and we encourage you to check out Clint's excellent MindShift podcast. Here's Clint now. I want to thank Clint for taking the time to be on the show. And it is something that we've been in conversation about for a while to kind of put this together. We're going to be doing something special really for both of our shows, for both of our podcasts. I want you to be able to hear from Clint about his own personal experience, but also all that he's learned that he wants to be able to share with the public and also all that he's learned also from doing this podcast, because as he does and I do, I learn from a lot of the guests that I've had on. And so Clint, I know you're a, a wealth of information, but also come to this on a personal level. So would you mind uh, taking a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Rachel. I was raised as a fundamentalist or evangelical Christian in the Seattle, Washington area. My parents were into the Bill Gothard cult, which I consider it a cult now. Uh, we didn't, uh, obviously at the time, it was just normal. Everything was normalized. You know, when you're raised in religion, I have since discovered it's normalized. You don't know, you, I mean, you're just accepting all this stuff as true as a kid. You don't have the capacity to critically think in terms of questioning the doctrine. You're told by the, your parents, told by the pastor or whoever the leader is, this is all true. So I grew up believing it all as true. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I was a pastor of a church for about 12 years. Then I came over here, did a PhD, taught for another eight years at a Bible college. You know, so I was all in. I spent most of my, well, all of my life as a, as a young person and as an adult, somehow either involved in ministry and or academics until I deconstructed and walked away from it all. So on my podcast, that's really what I try to do. I'm a teacher by, by trade. I mean, that's what I do. That's how I'm wired. And so I love to explore and learn things for myself, but that's not enough. I want to share it with the world, so to speak. You know, So my own deconstruction and then reconstruction, I think, is what I'm sharing with my listeners, I guess I would say. I want to invite them along on the journey that I'm already going along myself. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a wonderful thing. You know, There are a lot of people who 
find ways to share what they've been through with others, either through this kind of public forum or going around and speaking or just making sure that when they have an opportunity, they share their story so they can do education and prevention, even if it's sitting and having coffee with someone. But I think that the need to get the word out is important. And the idea that we teach this in so many different ways. I was thinking as you were talking about saying that you're a teacher, and of course, I want to hear more about your experience. I've talked to a lot of former cult members who say that they want to go back and they want to try to rescue the people who they left. They want to be able to educate people. They want to be able to educate the leader if it's all at all possible. It often isn't, but it's a worthwhile attempt. And what I found is that sometimes just through living a good life and a happy life once you've left, which was something that you were probably told was not possible. Mm. Yeah, the exact opposite, actually. Right. Your things are going to go far worse for you now. Far worse. Um, you'll, a lot of people are told they're, they're going to get uh, some sort of illness. They're going to get killed. They're, you know, but I found just being happy and being productive and living a good life still in line with whatever ethical, moral core you have that doesn't necessarily have to be God-based. I think you do a huge lesson, a huge amount of educating right there about not only what's possible once you leave, but how many of the teachings you had in the group that were fear-mongering, that were just to control and to keep people there. Absolutely. I've I've told this story before, but that's what got me into, I guess, the education side. Probably about three years ago, there was a series on in this country, and it was it was called Twisted Faith Week. And I'm like, that sounds great. I got to see this, you know. And it was a series of documentaries that they did, and it was about maybe six or seven episodes, an hour long each, and each one featured an ex cult member, but from completely different backgrounds, you know. So you had like ex-nation of Islam. And then the next week it was an ex-Scientologist. And then the next week was an ex-Mormon or something, you know. And as we watched these documentaries week in and week out, I started realizing a couple of things that was really fascinating. One was how similar their story was to mine. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I didn't come out of a cult. Of course, this is three, four years ago. Why am I having a similar storyline to this person? I shouldn't, you know, on paper. And then the second thing is when they started identifying the various tactics that were used to, like you say, control, manipulate, indoctrinate these cult members, I started thinking, hang on a minute, those are the same tactics that were used on me in the evangelical church. Yet it's not a cult, again, thinking it's not a cult. That then started me on this journey because then I started going and reading books like Stephen Hassan and Yanya Lalich and things like that, Robert J. Lifton. And that was, my mind was blown. I'm like, oh my God, these tactics were used on me. And then I started talking about it and people were saying, oh my God, (laughs) they were used on me too in the church. You know, so that's kind of the journey I I was on. I would like you to also be able to explain about the evangelical movement, the sort of the the basis of that and some of the thoughts and, and the thinking that propels people towards that, if you can. And I just want to start by saying that It affects me deeply as someone who's Jewish, because I think about the Inquisition. I think about, you know, convert or die or actually be pushed off a cliff in Spain and a lot of other really horrible things that happen in our history. And I know I have a mezuzah, which is just 
uh, it's like it has a little prayer, a little protective prayer that's outside my house. Not that I'm such a believer, but it's more of a cultural tradition. And I know it made, made my mom happy. So I did. <laughs> um, but because of that, I'm targeted. And during my high holidays, during the holiest days of the year, I get descended upon by Mormons, by Jehovah's Witnesses, by pamphlets, DVDs. This is how we're going to save you. Or I leave for the store on a random day, come back to, sorry, I missed you. Do you want to find out how to be saved? I am now, because of COVID, not only are the Jehovah's Witnesses not coming to the house, they're calling me. I'm getting messages on my cell phone, shamelessly, because I don't know how they got my cell phone number, but giving me tracks to look up, saying that if you believe, then God will protect you from all illness, which is, I think, a lot of hubris during time of COVID. And then sending me another message a week or two later, asking me if I did my homework, basically. Did I look up the scriptures and what did I think about them? And I think, I don't know you and stop, leave me alone. Uh, so I, uh, so tell me about the evangelical movement and what are the, what are the ideas that propel it? Oh man, how much time you say we have? Um, there's so much. <laughs> okay. Well, it's interesting going back to your point about being Jewish and being targeted by certainly evangelicals and Jehovah's Witnesses, because <clears throat> there's a, a huge strain, of course, the, the fact that Christianity comes out of Judaism, obviously. And so does Islam. So they come, they all three claim Abraham as their sort of spiritual father. And Jerusalem, of course, is the spiritual home to all three religions, which, of course, as we know, historically has led to all kinds of wars and conflicts and problems between between those three faiths. And it's interesting because, like in Christianity, okay, so they, they say, yes, Jesus was Jewish. Clearly, you know, he was not he was not a Gentile, he was not anything else, he was Jewish. But yet the Jews, um, they see them as this, this strange anomaly. It's like they don't believe in Jesus, the Messiah. You know, most Jews are saying, well, uh, that's not part of my religion. I don't believe the New Testament, you know. So you're in this strange place where it's like, if we could convert a Jew, man, that's a huge feather in our cap because that's God's chosen people. That's what the Bible's all about. You know, you're, you're all through the Bible. That's, you know, it's about the nation of Israel and all the rest of it. So uh, from an evangelical perspective, you know, you got Jews for Jesus and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a huge thing. And the, even the, the language of Judeo-Christian America, you know, America was founded on Judeo-Christian values. And so that they put that piece in there in the Christian nationalist sense, you know, so that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, <laughs> but, wow. but basically, I would say that evangelicalism in America today is second, third, fourth actual generation of fundamentalism. That's where the movement comes from. So to understand evangelicalism today, like the Christian right, people like Mike Pence and Sarah Palin and you know even Marjorie Taylor Greene, people like that, they are in the Christian right, you know, dominionist kind of an idea, but they come out of the fundamentalist movement, which is come, comes out of the late 19th century up until about the 1950s, which itself was a big reaction against liberal theology so that's where the fundamentalist piece comes from. But in the 1930s and 40s, they realized they needed to soften their position publicly. So you have the National Association of Evangelicals, which is where that term kind of comes from in early 1940s. And since then, they've kind of shifted their public image to be less militant. You know, but if you drill down, this is what I'm getting at, is if you drill down into evangelical doctrine, what you find at its bedrock is basically fundamentalist doctrine. 
and fundamentalist dogma, you know? So it's really kind of a, 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 they've papered over a lot of the ugly truths that lie behind evangelicalism. Right. And can you give an example just of even fundamentalist doctrine? Sure. Well, for example, the biggest debate in fundamentalism between them and the liberals was about the Bible. So the liberals were saying, well, we need to accommodate modern science and we need to incorporate modern history and archaeology. And now that we know more than they did 2000 years ago, and the liberals were kind of progressive Christians of their day, the fundamentalists fought against that. They kind of saw themselves as the defenders of orthodoxy. They they were going to defend the true orthodox historic Christian faith. And so then you go down the line of like inerrancy of scripture, infallibility of scripture. So they fought to, to maintain what they called the fundamentals, which is where the name fundamentalist comes from. They said, we need to defend the fundamentals of the faith because the liberals, are, they're going to wash it all away and there won't be anything left. So today, even among your evangelicals, they're going to defend mostly the inerrancy of scripture. So there's no mistakes, no errors. The Bible is authoritative. It's infallible. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that comes directly out of fundamentalism. Right. So even with, I mean, th- this is true, I think, when anyone believes that something is the word of God. So even with changes that we've learned, scientific knowledge we have now, uh, I, I mean, I think about even in the the Old Testament, which the Jews don't call it the Old Testament, we call it the Bible. <laughs> it's not old or new, it just is. And you know, there are a lot of ways about how to punish your child for doing a variety of things, which is not kosher now or legal. And I think also that people who have any kind of disability cannot lead a service, cannot be clergy, basically. And now there are many synagogues with people with special needs and a synagogue for the deaf. I know that's here in L.A. And so it looks like there isn't room made within that way of thinking for any kind of new awareness. Exactly. And that's one of the big problems. Whereas we say like liberal Christianity, they were trying to make room for those, you know, they say, wait a minute, we now know more in terms of modern science and archaeology. And we're, we know a lot more about the Bible than they did even 500 years ago. We've, we've discovered more manuscripts, for example, and they're not all the same. They have different the differences, variations. You know? And so a lot there was a lot of German theologians, for example, in the in the 19th century that were really leading the way, what they call higher criticism. And they were saying, wait a minute, there seems to be a lot of discrepancies, there seems to be a lot of editing, there seems to be a lot of redaction. What about that? And the <laughs> the fundamentalists, their heads were just exploding. You know, they were like, Nope, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, period, from beginning to end, even the part where he was recorded to have died. He prophetically said that before he died and wrote it in the Bible, and then he died. That's the extent to which they felt they needed to defend the authorship of the Pentateuch as being Moses. You know, so that's where they were going with it. That's fascinating. So with that, with that intensity of a background, how does one, and specifically how do you or how did you start to kind of look at things from a little bit more of a distant perspective? taking in kind of the big picture and wondering if it spoke to you in the same way. It was a long process. I have a good friend, a Canadian friend, David Hayward, the naked pastor. And he told me once years ago, something that really stuck with me. He said, deconstruction is often like the twin rails of a train track. One track is your relationship with the church. The other track is your sort of theological, biblical views. 
And what happens, no matter which one you go down, eventually it'll, it'll impact the other track. So if you have a problem with the church, eventually you'll start questioning your, your biblical and theological views or vice versa. If you have questions about the Bible, it will start impacting your relationship with other Christians because you're asking too many questions and you're a troublemaker. So in my case, it was kind of both. I was questioning things. I was going down a more progressive line, but I was also burning out. I was a pastor. I completely burned out after 12 years of ministry as an elder and then a pastor. So I walked away from the church, but I said, I want to reform the church. I still want to stay a Christian, but I don't want to ever have anything to do with the church again, which is about the time we came over here. And so I was on this journey of like, what does that mean? So that's kind of the line that I went down. So, right. So the, what does it mean? It's a big question, especially also knowing that you were a leader in your community. And you know, I've talked to a number of people who were leaders within their community that they ended up leaving. And while they were teaching, they were starting to wonder if they were believing what they were saying. Was that your experience? Exactly. That's what happened. So, so I did the PhD over here and that was, I can see now that what I was trying to do was to reform the church from within, from that progressive Christian point of view. So I did my PhD and I, I got a gig teaching at a Bible college. And that's exactly what happened. I started questioning that official party line that I was required to teach. So I found ways around it where I would get the students to question the teachings of the, <laughs> the Bible college. And at one point, I knew something was wrong when a woman came up to me after one of the class sessions in which I had asked the students to question, you know, the inerrancy of the Bible. She said, are you even a Christian? And I said, well, why would you say that? Because I still considered myself a Christian at the time. She said, well, you're causing us to question the Bible. Christians wouldn't do that. I, I certainly am not a Christian teacher in a Bible college would not do that. And she actually went to the head of the school up in Leeds, which is where this place was at the time. And she complained. <laughs> she basically said, he's causing trouble. You know, he's causing us to question our faith. That caused me to stand back and say, all right. So something clearly is going on here. Other people can see it. How interesting. So this was at the University of Leeds? No, this was a Bible college. They were still going based out of Birmingham and they have regional centers all over the country. So I, I used to teach. I'd go up to Leeds and teach on Wednesdays and Thursdays and stay the night over there. And then on Fridays, I'd go to Liverpool. We had another center there. So I traveled quite a bit. I was on the road all the time. It was very exhausting, very long days, you know, traveling up to Leeds and Liverpool. But I was passionate because my vision was I was going to train these men and women to avoid the pitfalls that I had experienced while I was a pastor, you see. And I was going to give them my you know, ministry vision, as it were, as a more progressive Christian. But that didn't work because, as I say, the longer I went down that road and started questioning the dogma, I was having increasing problems with teaching it to them. You know, so at some point I got made redundant, which is what they say in this country. I got laid off. Wasn't through fault of my own. The, the Bible college ran out of money. And so they, they laid a bunch of us off. They were in huge debt. So I see now that was probably the best thing they could have ever done for me. <laughs> I was really angry at the time because I just lost my job and every, everyone got screwed over. But now I, I think, wow, that was huge because I needed to get out of there. I just needed the money too much to quit. You know, so I, I stayed probably longer than I should have. Wow. So you're really highlighting, you know, this discrepancy between belief and critical thinking. And when you're at that crossroads, 
it can be a messy place. And you can see that some people are going to have a reaction to that because you're kind of taking them out of this formulaic belief, which probably is the way they think they're supposed to be doing it or the thing that probably gives them the greatest sense of security. Because having a critical eye for some people is very liberating and for other people, anxiety producing. And so for you to develop that kind of critical eye or that critical thinking, I'm sure it caused a lot of tension and was freeing at the same time. So did you have people to talk to during this time or were you kind of on your own? Yes and no. The the people I was talking to weren't necessarily part of my deconstruction in that they were deconstructing themselves. But one of the biggest pieces that factored into it was actually my PhD supervisor at the University of Chester, which was really good because He was kind of a progressive Christian. He was nearly on the fringe. He was almost all the way out. He's since left the faith now as well. But he would get me to question some of the dogmatic statements that I would make in my thesis chapters as I turned them in. And he would say, you know, are you sure you want to say this? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Well, look what you wrote here. Look what you said. You put a pretty dogmatic statement about the Bible or something and then I would reread the sentence or the paragraph and be thinking, wow, that, that is pretty dogmatic. Where's that coming from? Why do I feel like I need to make that statement in such an assertive way? Because I realized coming out of seminary, that's how you needed to talk. You had to be very dogmatic in your assertions. You had to be very confident. And it was just accepted that you know the Bible was inerrant and inspired and all the rest of it. And he's going... Uh, are you sure? You're going to have to defend that. If you want to say that, you can say that, but you're going to have to defend that at some point. And I thought, wow, I'm not sure I actually believe that. That's just an unconscious presupposition that's coming out. You know, people have that just in, in general, I think in life, when they say things that are automatic and they say them in this style, they heard them. It's happened to me as a parent where I've said something and it was automatic. And one of my kids said, but why? Like, why does that matter? And I thought, actually, no idea. I'll get back to you on that. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You're just parroting someone else's line. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? It's very true. So I think a a lot of people, it's part of human nature to kind of shed that if you're open to it and become sort of who you want to be and say the things that are in really in line with you and not just passed along to you, and you're just a conduit for that idea. And so I'm wondering about the fears that you had during this time, because if it was so much about, you know, the, oh no, what could happen if you leave or you don't believe, how did you manage the fears that you, I'm assuming, had during this time? Well, the biggest fear is the fear of hell from an evangelical point of view. That's uh, I've talked to many, many ex-evangelicals who said the hardest and last piece that I had this really struggle to get rid of, to, to let go, was the fear of hell, because the stakes are that incredibly high. If we're wrong, we're going to hell. That's just it, period. If we're wrong about what we believe and, and we're walking away from the church and all, the, all this stuff, we are going to hell. There's no question about it, you know? So when you've been raised to believe that for non-believers, going to hell is a lifetime or an eternity of conscious torment in the flames of hell. There's, you can't have any higher stakes than that. You know, there's no worse punishment that you can come up with, you know, being burned for an eternity in hell because you didn't believe all the right things. 
So that was probably the biggest, again, for me, the last and biggest fear, because on this journey of progressive Christianity, I can see now I was jettisoning little pieces, like puzzle pieces. They were dropping away or little boxes that were I was getting rid of. I'm like, OK, I don't need that. I don't need that. But I still have this core belief system that I can cling to. But even that started to fall away. And then I finally realized one day there's nothing left. There is no more pieces to hold on to. I don't have anything left. And I realized I'm not a Christian anymore. And I'm, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. Wow. So, you know, when you were talking about hell, I know recently there was somebody who said that, you know, hell was basically a construct to make sure that people didn't do what they shouldn't do. And that, you know, he got a lot of flack for it because he was in a leadership position within Christianity. But that's what he said, that, you know, it doesn't fit with what we know about how things work and uh, what happens after you die. Chances are there isn't that whole idea with all the visuals and the forever burning kind of idea, but that it's been very successful in behavior modification. Unbelievably successful. (laughs) Yeah. Uh huh. But I, I, it makes me wonder about how many people hold on to belief because of the what ifs. You know, what if they're right about this? Well, and going back to we mentioned Robert J. Lifton, thought reform and the psychology of totalism. Every category he has eight sort of markers of cults, and one of them is sacred science. And when I read that bit about what he talks about sacred science, I realized that is exactly the view that most evangelicals and fundamentalists have of the Bible. Basically, sacred science is that every religion has its sacred text, you know, whether it's the Quran or the Hebrew Bible or the the Bible or the Book of Mormon or whatever, or Scientology, Dianetics, whatever it is, that's sacred science. And it can't be questioned because the implications, again, are too high to start questioning the dogma, you know. And so I realized that was basically what was going on in my view of the Bible. It was kind of magical thinking. It was, I was seeing it as sacred science. You can't question it, as you say. And part of that is, of course, questioning hell. There was a book that came out. I don't know if you remember this. There's a guy named Rob Bell, and he's a very famous Christian progressive guy that has written a lot of books, and he's huge in progressive Christianity now. But he wrote a book years ago called Love Wins, and it caused an absolute firestorm. And the thesis of his book was kind of a universalist argument that we need to question the doctrine of hell on the one hand. And then on the other hand, probably when we all die, love, love of God is going to win and we're all going to end up going to heaven anyway. And man, it caused such a firestorm in fundamentalist evangelical churches. They were ready to, they did brand him as an absolute heretic and everything else. So you can't question it. Very interesting. I remember uh, being asked one time, because someone asked me if I was a believer and I said, you know, I'm agnostic and, you know, and kind of until further notice (laughs) until, until we know for sure. And I remember him saying to me, then how do you know what's right and what's wrong? And I thought, I don't, I don't see the connection, but it was very connected to him. Oh yeah. No moral compass. No moral <laughs> compass. Right. Exactly. That's a classic. That I'm just out killing people and coveting their oxen or whatever it has in the Ten Commandments, <laughs> which is a very specific thing. And I swear I've never coveted anyone's oxen, but just how would you know how to not do the wrong thing if you don't have God as a guide? And that's the problem is that, let's say, for example, 
as an evangelical, going back to my experience. So there's lots of things in the Bible that aren't covered because obviously it was written over 2000 years ago or more. And so they didn't have movies. They didn't have internet. They didn't have pornography online. They didn't have Tinder. They didn't have all this kind of stuff back then. So people would, man, when I was a pastor, people would ask me that, you know, is it okay for me to go see this movie? It's an R-rated movie. What do you think the Bible has to say about that? Well, there's nothing in the Bible about, they didn't have movies, you know, when Paul was running around and Jesus and all the rest of it, you know, so you have to come up with all these principles. It becomes very difficult to sort of apply in a way the Bible to modern life, because as you say, it's coveting oxen. And, you know, if your neighbor's sheep falls in the ditch, it's against the law to not stop and help it pull pull the sheep out. Or, you know, it was written in an agrarian culture thousands of years ago that doesn't apply. So what they do is they they derive principles, you see. they do, So they would say to you, Rachel, well, the principle is not, it's not about coveting an oxen, but if your neighbor drives up with a brand new car and you covet that car, it's the same principle. You see, that's the sin. That's what's wrong. It's the coveting aspect of it. That's, you see, it's the principle behind the actual commandment that's binding even today. So even in the Old Testament, that would still be seen as a binding principle. Oh, that's so interesting. So another question for you, just based on your trajectory, I know a lot of people will say that they were raised, not unlike people even outside of religious environments, but they were raised with false correlations. And that something happened to someone that was good because God was rewarding them and something happened that was bad because they were being punished for not doing X, Y, and Z that God wanted them to do or things happening in the world. And that there's this grand idea about why. How has that been for you departing from the sense of knowing the reason why? Oh, it's absolutely huge. As you say, in Christianity, the brand that I came out of, the evangelical faith, it was all about a reward and punishment type theology like you just articulated, which, you know, you take a look, for example, like a book like Job in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, that's one that shatters those norms because, and that's why Job was so angry when all of it went to shit, because he was doing all of the right things scrupulously, even far and above what he needed to do according to the law. And yet God has this cosmic bet with Satan and destroys his life utterly and Job never finds out why this all happened to him, even in the end. He never find, he never gets an answer, you know. And so you think, okay, so that doesn't work. That reward and punishment theology clearly doesn't work. Because if he he should have been blessed and he was being blessed, and then you know, God just destroyed it. So then you start thinking, well, does that mean that if my life goes to shit, is God having a cosmic bet with Satan right now that I don't know about? Is that what this is about? I, you know, you start second guessing every, or have I done something wrong, as you say, and I need to repent of it. I've got a hidden sin in my life. What I did when I was an, an evangelical, I developed what's called religious scrupulosity, which is basically you, you have to, even a thought could be a sin that could then lead you to be punished. So you have to constantly be on guard about even your thoughts. Coveting your neighbor's car is a sin or his wife or his, you know, whatever it might be. So you have to be so careful because anything could get you punished. Incredible. I'm going to go back to that in, in a moment, but the scrupulosity is a fantastic word. So I love when I learn new words from the people I talk to, you know, in 
I just actually heard this week there was a story about a whale that swallowed a fisherman and then spit him out. Name was Jonah. <laughs> and I was thinking what we were going to be talking. And I thought how interesting that is to have oh, a sort of biblical image. But I also think it is true. Like, that's what they would say that a whale would just actually spit it back out because not looking to eat humans probably didn't taste very good, especially with all their fishing gear on. But it was very it was very interesting because then, you know, it was another one of those. Well, why? Why that happened? And, and being able to answer why. And the, the fisherman was also asking, why me? But that is what a lot of people ask. And it gets very existential in a lot of respects. And maybe, you know, for us to, to finish up there about how calming it is to know when you're dealing with existential issues and how has it been for you? Have you needed to sort of look at those in different ways or find other answers? Yeah, I would say one of the biggest things is learning that I'm responsible for my own decisions in life. And what comes along with that is I'm also responsible for whatever consequences come with those. I can do whatever I want. I really can. Nothing is going to stop me. However, I also have to be ready to answer for any consequences if I walk in and tell my boss tomorrow that I'm quitting my job, I can do that. I could walk out, but then I'm not going to have money coming in. I'm not going to have, you know what I mean? So I have to be prepared to deal with the consequences of that on that level. I'm not going to pray about it. You know, so that's the biggest thing, isn't it? Is I used to spend hours begging God for, you know, to find out what his will is. So I wouldn't you know, make any mistakes and you, you never get an answer. So you, you keep going forward and hope that you're doing the right thing and hoping that you're not outside of God's will and the worst place to be. It's just, it's a, it can be paralyzing. And I don't feel that at all anymore. I make the decisions that based on the best available information and we t I talk it through with other people and then you just make a decision. And I'm, there's no prayer involved. There's no begging God, no searching the scriptures and whatever comes of it, you, you have to deal with it. Right. Okay. And I think when you were talking before also about the scrupulosity, you know, sometimes people will come in to talk to me and it's been a long time since they've been out and they just didn't feel quite right yet talking about it. And sometimes it's for that reason that there's still this idea that if they even think about things in a way that's quote unquote wrong, that it will be punishable or when they say it out loud. So it's an unfortunate thing because there can be a great time delay between people leaving and then getting the support that they need because of that. Absolutely. And in, in evangelicalism and in Christianity, even in Judaism too, the issue of the, you know, the problem of evil has always been an issue way back in, you know, thousands of years ago, rabbis were debating this problem as well. Why do bad things happen to good people? Someone wrote a book about it. Didn't a rabbi wrote that book? Why do bad things happen to good people. And it's always been that issue because in Christianity, you never know why things happen. You don't. You truly don't. My argument is God's always let off the hook. He's never responsible ever. It's always something you've done or some inscrutable reason. We'll find out when we get to heaven or something like that. There's always some answer, you know, and that's the way you have to live your life. Well, okay. So Clint Haycock, I want to thank you for sharing some of, I know it's just the tip of the iceberg, but sharing some of your journey and your awareness now based on what you've been through and also I'm sure then a great sensitivity about other people going through 
similar situations and similar transitions. And it does take a while to go through all of it. I know we were going to talk a lot about the psychology of religion, sort of religion and mental health and how it calms the mind and how you deal with kind of anxiety and other issues through belief. And so we're going to do something special, actually, and we're going to finish up here on this podcast on the indoctrination show. And for the rest of my conversation with Clint, please go to his show, to his podcast, MindShift. It is so good. And I'm going to have you tell people about where to find it so they can hear the rest of this conversation. That's right. So we're going to do the second half of our conversation. As you say, talking about mental health and religion, your clients and religious trauma syndrome. I cannot wait to have that conversation. That is going to be on the MindShift podcast, which is available everywhere. You can get your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, all those typical places. You can find this show with me and Rachel talking about this important topic. Right on. I can't wait. All right. So should we transition into now the MindShift podcast? Cool. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Clint for speaking with us today. And I love that we're able to do a dual episode, a crossover episode, so that those of you who listen to this podcast, Indoctrination, also get to be familiar with Clint's podcast, MindShift. Clint talked about something so interesting about sort of the what ifs. And that people sometimes stay within certain belief systems because they're afraid. What if something happens to them if they leave? What if the pastors, the guru, whomever, what if they were right about all the things that they prophesied, all the things that they told you would happen to you if you left, all the things they told you would happen to you after you die? Should you believe or should you become? a non-believer. It's very hard to fight against that because it goes to this very primal place in us, the part of us that from birth really wants us to do things that keep us safe. Even when children are going through a developmental stage towards a bit more independence, you see that in preschools actually, where they go running off and look behind to see if their parents are still there, or they climb up a little bit higher on some sort of equipment or on a playground, jungle gym, whatever it is, and they still look back to see if someone's right there to catch them. A lot of people feel that way about religion, and I think that's why it also works so well and is so popular. I think also about how there are many people who will stay stuck in fear because they don't want to test the what-ifs. It's not dissimilar from superstition. And this is not to put down a belief in a higher power and equate it with just being afraid of walking under a ladder. But it does connect with the same part of the brain. If we do something that we're told not to do, if we do something that we think is reckless, because 
we're told that it could then happen that we won't have luck that day, or it could then happen that something bad will happen to us. We'll think twice before we do it. And so many people are quite afraid of the what ifs and sometimes don't ever leave that fear because of the false correlations that we also have woven into our lives. The time that we might say something that's not true when we're young, and then something bad happens and we think, oh, it's because I told that lie and I was told that that means I'm a bad person and bad things happen to bad people. And we make the connections. And if we don't, then sometimes religious leaders do or both of us do. So that we get caught in this cycle of sometimes never really knowing if something happens to us that's good because we believe or because we didn't step on the crack on the sidewalk or just because, just because there's happenstance, just because there's coincidence, just because. And some people will say, I don't want to test that out. I don't think I want to know. I don't want to know what's going to happen to me if I don't pray before I go to bed at night. I don't want to take that risk. And other people will say, I need to at least test that out. I need to find out. If I don't pray before I go to sleep, will I wake up in the morning? And there's only one way to find out. If you wake up and everything's fine, then you know. It is important for people, I think, at times to see how much they're capable of doing on their own, too, of protecting themselves, being their own advocates, being their own protectors. Knowing also that sometimes when people are very much steeped in a belief system, they actually engage in fewer self-protections because they think that they are spiritually protected. So there are people who actually take more risks, who might walk down a dark alley, who might not set an alarm at night if they have an alarm system because they went to church that day or because they said just the right prayer. I know a lot of people who I've worked with have said that they think back on the risks they took because they thought that they were protected. And in retrospect, they think that part of them was really kind of testing to see if they could put themselves in a dangerous situation, might it test their faith? And when nothing bad happened, they felt vindicated. They felt spiritually supported and that they felt it validated that belief system as a protector for them. And other people say it was just by luck. It was just by chance that nothing bad happened to me. So what I want you to be able to do when you think about the what ifs, what if they're right, is not for me to necessarily say, abandon it all and take your risks and see if you can do things on your own. But at the very least, don't be blocked in by it. Don't be so terrified of doing something not perfectly and that if you skip one prayer, something bad will happen. Or if you don't donate the amount of money you were told to donate, something bad will happen. I can't imagine if you do believe in a God that God would care to that level of detail if you tie the 10% or 15% of your income or nothing at all. I would hope if there's a God that he or she has bigger things on their mind. But also know that 
when you live your life and you want to be able to not have to be afraid of the what ifs, work in partnership and say, okay, it could be that there is something watching over me. It could be, but I still need to watch over me. I still need to make sure that I don't walk down a dark alley just to test to see if I'm a good fill in the blank believer of something or somebody. I don't actually need to keep testing that. Maybe what I need to do is think, how do I potentially need to think this through to make sure that I have my keys ready as I'm walking to my car and make sure that the windows are locked before I go to bed and not just think, I'll be fine because the pastor said so. When a lot of things this year and years past have happened to people who were believers, they really did think that they got COVID or their house was destroyed in a hurricane, tornado, fire, or that relatives of theirs didn't make it safely across the border, that it's because they didn't believe hard enough, well enough, perfectly enough. Please don't use faith and religion to torment yourself, to kind of crucify yourself, because then you're walking around wounded. And it's a very unhappy world then when people just see themselves as not having done enough and that they could have prevented something that maybe really in actuality was beyond anything that they could control. So as you move through this world, make good decisions. And even if you're a believer or if you're not, still think things through and try to be safe. And if something bad happens to you, it could be just because sometimes bad things happen. And if good things happen to you, it could be also just because good things happen. Don't be afraid of coincidence. Don't be afraid that there isn't an absolute formula to follow because that formula doesn't necessarily always free you. Sometimes it can become its own prison. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.